Let's turn together in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 22 to the end of the chapter. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. We pray that you would help us to see reality. We thank you for giving us the scriptures to show us reality. And the reality is, Lord, that we are weak. We are dependent. We have nothing apart from you. Help us to see that so clearly this morning. Help us to lift our gaze up from the things of this earth to the things of heaven, away from our self-sufficiency and our self-righteousness, and to your throne and to your Son, where real life is. Please use this time. Please speak through me. Please help us to hear your word this morning and not the word of men. And thank you for this time. And thank you for your love for us and your truth that sets us free. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of John begins with a prologue within which John makes absolutely clear who and what his gospel is all about. He begins immediately with this, his great theme. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, you cannot conceive of anything apart from the word of God. You can't conceive of God apart from the word of God. Because in the beginning was God and the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John is saying, you're not even conceiving of God properly unless you're conceiving of the Word also. Nor can you conceive of anything in creation, doesn't matter what it is, you name it, 
from the most mundane things to the most profound things in creation, whatever came into being, came into being through the Word of God. All things that God created came into being by the Word, and as Paul tells us elsewhere in the book of Colossians, for the Word. All things exist that were created for the Word. So beautiful, so praiseworthy, and so principally important is the Word of God that God made all things by the Word and for the Word. So friends, if you've ever wondered why did God create the world, this is your answer. For the Word, He created it. It's not a surprise then if the universe is all about the Word, if it's all about Christ, then the Gospel of John, it's not surprising that this inspired Gospel is also all about Christ. This Gospel is in harmony with the universe. And anything that we do that isn't all about Christ isn't in harmony with the universe and God's created purpose, which is Jesus Christ. But this book is. The explicitly stated purpose of John's gospel is to tell us about the word in whom is life, so that by believing in him, we may have life in his name. That's the purpose of the gospel of John, to show us the word, and that by believing in him, we may have life in his name. There's only two kinds of people in this world. Those who believe in the word and understand the word and have life, and those who don't understand the word and don't believe in the word, and so therefore they don't have life. We've encountered him in the prologue so far as we've gone through the Gospel of John. The word became flesh and dwelt among us in order to show us who the Father is, in order to reveal to us God. We've encountered the word in the testimony of John the Baptist, who came baptizing so that he, the word would be revealed to Israel and to this world. And he declared him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've encountered the word in his first miracle that he performed at the wedding in Cana, where he turned water into wine, indicating that the word has come into the world to bring blessing to us and not cursing. He came to save and not to judge. He came to give us life. Isn't that a wonderful miracle that shows that? We've also encountered the word in his first impression that he gave in Jerusalem at that Passover, where he cleansed the temple. And his first impression that he gave us was that he declared the highest religious worship practiced by mankind to be a sham. And he declared that both in his cleansing of the temple and in his teaching to Nicodemus during that same Passover festival. We will continue to encounter the word throughout the rest of the Gospel of John because the word is who the Gospel of John is all about. And we'll see more and more of his beauty and of his, of his glory. And as a Christian, that should really excite you. That the Gospel of John is all about him. It's in harmony with God's created purpose in creation. And he's beautiful and he's glorious. Now turning to the passage that we just read and that we'll be examining this morning. Did you notice, and really you can see this upon minimal observation, that this passage is all about the centrality and the supremacy of of Christ. Have you noticed that when we read that? If you didn't, it really just takes minimal observation. This is all about Jesus Christ and his importance and his sufficiency and his centrality in God's purpose. In other words, this passage points us away from other things, even good things, to Jesus who is understood to be everything. That's what this passage is all about. Keep that in mind as we go on and examine this passage. It's all about pointing to him. The great summary statement that binds this passage that we read together is verse 30. 
He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. He is beautiful, brothers and sisters. Do you see that? Have you seen it before? Maybe today you're, you're dull. That happens, right? And we don't see how beautiful he is. But have you seen his beauty before? And do you know that he's beauty, beautiful? And therefore he must increase. And his beauty must be seen more and more. He is worthy to increase. Amen? He deserves our attention. He deserves our affection. He deserves our trust. He deserves our confidence. He must increase and I must decrease. But as we'll see in this passage, that truth is not evident to all. Not everybody saw that in Jesus' day and not everybody sees that today. And it's to this problem that we're going to turn this morning as we examine this passage. This, he must increase I must decrease, and the problem of not seeing that. So we're going to look at this passage in, in three natural sections, and I'm actually indebted to J.C. Ryle for, these, for this outline, this structure. I think he just nailed it in his expository um, notes on the Gospels. If, you've ever, if you ever want a really good practical um, uh, book on, the, on any of the Gospels, I highly recommend J.C. Ryle's expository notes on the gospel. And he, 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 I'm indebted to him for this outline. So first, we're going to look at, number one, an example of the petty rivalries and competitions car- carried on by fallen humanity. Okay? That's the first thing that we are confronted with in this passage. Secondly, a splendid model of genuine humility from John the Baptist. And thirdly, and lastly, a declaration of the incomparable glory of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to do this morning. So first of all, an example of the petty rivalries and competitions carried on by fallen humanity. Following Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, we're brought here to a historical incident which provides the final recorded testimony of John the Baptist to the Word of God. Verse 22 and 24 to 24. Let's read those again. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, some people might say, you know, this is kind of just useless historical information. What, what is even the purpose of verse 22, 23, and 24, except telling us that Jesus went into the countryside, and he was baptizing, and it was before John had been thrown into prison. Some people might think, that's just, those are just inconsequential details that we can just skip over. But since John includes them, I don't think that should be our attitude. We should never think, brothers and sisters, that historical details like this are useless. Let me just tell you, if anything, they do us an inestimable service, if anything, of reminding us that the Bible is a book of history right? These details, if anything, and they do more than that, but they remind us that what we're dealing with, what we're dealing with here is real history. We're talking about Jesus 2,000 years ago, about 30 AD, and he left Jerusalem, and he went into the countryside of Judea. Even that's just amazing, isn't it? Like, wow, that happened. This actually happened. You can get on a plane, you can fly to Jerusalem, you can see it's all there, and 2,000 years ago, Jesus was there with his disciples in the countryside baptizing. We're not talking about fiction here, but nonfiction. I recently read a book called The Christian Mind by Harry Blamires. Excellent book. I recommend it to everyone. And he made this comment about 
Christianity in history. I quote, Christianity is so much more than a mere moral code, a recipe for virtue, a system of comfortable idealistic thought. It is a religion of acts and facts. Its God is not an abstraction, but a person with a right arm and a voice. Its God has moved among us. How wonderful are thy works. That is a persistent biblical theme. Not how interesting are thy theories. Not how intense is thy being. Not even how unanswerable are thy arguments. But how wonderful are thy works. For Christianity is a religion of things that have happened. A baby born in Bethlehem, as we'll remember this Christmas. A body nailed upon a cross. Christianity, the Bible is not a manual of how to live your, you know, here's just a bunch of sage wisdom on how to live your life that's been tried, tested, and true, even though it contains sage wisdom like that. It's actually a book of acts and facts. It's a book of history. It's not a book of comfortable, idealistic thoughts. Wow, that's brilliant and just makes a lot of sense. It's a declaration. Our God has actually done things, really done things. He really created the world. He really flooded the earth. He really rescued Israel out of Egypt. He really sent them into Babylon. He really spoke through the prophets. He really sent his son into this world. And if we fail to see that this is nonfiction, then it doesn't matter how brilliant and beautiful and exciting the ideas are, it will not do anything for us unless we see this is true. This actually happened. Have you noticed that in your own life? You know, it's one thing to hear about grace and go, wow, that's so beautiful. But if you don't think it's true, then it doesn't give you any comfort or peace, right? And it's one thing to, to believe that Jesus really existed, but if you don't understand grace, that doesn't really do anything for you either, right? So you need to understand what it's all about and understand that it really happened, and that will give you true peace and comfort. So if anything, these details tell us and remind us that it is historical. After the Passover, Jesus moves, as I said, from Jerusalem into the countryside. He continues the ministry that he began. And John tells us that this was before John had been thrown into prison, which is an interesting comment because Matthew, Mark, and Luke begin looking at the ministry of Jesus after John is thrown into prison. So it seems like John here is writing to his readers and sharing this detail because he he knows they're all familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're familiar that Jesus began his ministry after, at least according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he, he started preaching after John was put in prison. He says, actually, Jesus was doing stuff even before that. He was baptizing, though Jesus was not actually baptizing. Look at uh, Look with me at chapter 4 of the Gospel of John. And these two verses are relevant. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. So there is a de-emphasis upon water baptism in the Gospel of John. You know, it's happening and it's a beautiful symbol. It's pointing to a greater reality. But those who think that water baptism somehow regenerates you or saves you, the Gospel of John wants to discourage that idea, right? It kind of distances Jesus from that. But Jesus is baptizing, and apparently he's gathering more disciples than John is. And for some, this is causing a problem. Look at verse 25. There arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Now, we don't know what the discussion was, what the dispute was. John doesn't think it's important enough to tell us what the dispute exactly was. But if we consider the context, what goes before this, what comes after this, they're probably debating, and the the speculation here is, is probably due to the physical separation 
between John and Jesus. The fact that John is baptizing and Jesus is baptizing over there, and there's probably some dispute about the nature of their two baptisms. Is Jesus replacing John's baptism? Is there something wrong with John's baptism? Is Jesus making a statement that John's baptism isn't sufficient? What, what's the nature of what it means to really be purified before God in light of the fact that these, now these two different groups and more people are going over to Jesus? Now, if we take verse 26 out of context, it might be an exclamation of joy, right? Look at verse 26. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, look, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. That could be an exclamation of joy if we took it out of context. They're happy, you know, this is fantastic, John. You testified of him, and everybody's going out to him now. But I don't know about you, but I sense confusion and disappointment in this, in this statement, right? It's not an exclamation of joy like it should be, but there's some confusion and disappointment. John Calvin comments that the phrase, all are coming to him, quote, is the expression, the expression is the language of envious persons. Everybody's going over to him. That's not what we want to see. But it's interesting because they believe that John testified of him. So here I think is the situation. The disciples of John, although they believed John testified of Jesus, they didn't like how things were turning out. They didn't like how things were turning out. They didn't like how their master, their rabbi, was being eclipsed by Jesus. In their mind, you know, it's it's wonderful that Jesus is the Messiah, but couldn't John the Baptist and Jesus join forces? Couldn't our rabbi and teacher John be honored? Couldn't, Couldn't it not eclipse him? Couldn't they just join forces and John have prestige here? And as we know, as the story goes, not only do John and Jesus do their separate things, John eventually is imprisoned and killed. So they believed, yeah, John testified of Jesus, but we're not too happy about how this is turning out. We thought, okay, here's the Messiah. He's going to take over, and John will be like his right-hand man, right? And everything will turn out just like we would like it to. What What they didn't know, or who they didn't know, is Jesus. They did not know him, even though they believed he was the one John pointed to. Isn't that the case? Isn't it possible to believe that Jesus is the one the prophets spoke of and not know who he is and understand what he's doing, right? They didn't realize that this was really all about Christ and God does not share his glory with another. We kind of want our cake and eat it too, don't we? We want to believe in Jesus, speaking generally. We want to believe in God. We want him to be glorified. But we also have our own little agendas as well, don't we? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, glory to me. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Or glory to my leader so I can look good for following him. But Christianity and Jesus Christ strips fallen humanity of all glory, and all the glory goes to God alone. We, had a, we see a similar incident of people bickering and quarreling about their leaders being the greatest in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Actually, chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, he deals with this. And turn with me there to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 30. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And here you have Christians even. In rivalry, quarreling. Who the best apostle is. And they hold forth their 
the apostle they follow so that they can get credit for saying, I follow the best apostle. I'm somebody. Because he's somebody, I'm somebody. And there's selfish boasting. And Paul answers with these words in verse 30 and 31. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So he's saying, look, first of all, you're in Christ Jesus because of God. And second of all, Christ Jesus is everything. He's your wisdom. He's your righteousness. He's your sanctification. He's your redemption. Not any man. It's all about him. So that if you're going to glory, and please do, glory in the Lord. Glory in God. If you're going to brag, please do. But brag in him. We should be bragging all the time in God. Amen? We should be going out there and bragging, but bragging about him, about God. And not about man and not about ourselves. Jesus is everything and therefore he gets the glory. Such petty rivalries and competitions for glory have never left us since these days and we need to be on guard against these things ourselves. Human beings never evolve out of this kind of thing. This is in our nature. It's our nature to try to get glory for ourselves or for our group. And to have our cake and eat it too. To, yeah, give God his due and then get our own as well. That's just in our nature. And we won't evolve out of it over time, 2,000 years, and include some iPhones and, you know, lots of technology. We don't change. We're still doing this. Something outside of us must interfere with this pattern and inhibit it. That is the truth. So you need to ask yourself, we all need to ask ourselves, is there any of this in my life? Is there petty rivalry? Is there competition? Am I vying for glory? Am I envious when someone else receives glory? Am I, am I upset that I am not the center? And that happens even in religious contexts. We need to ask ourselves that about ourselves. And if we see those things in us, we need to realize that's all a symptom of not seeing the truth like we ought. If you have envy, if you have quarreling, competition, that is a symptom of not seeing the truth. Secondly, a splendid model of genuine humility. Turn back to John chapter 3. As we look at what John the Baptist replies to this situation. F.B. Meyer, commenting on John the Baptist's response, says, His answer is one of the noblest ever made by human lips. Verse 27 to 30, which is John's reply to the situation, brothers and sisters, is like the proverb says, these words are apples of gold in pictures of silver. Do you, have you noticed the beauty of these words? These are stunning words. They truly are the noblest ever made by human lips. They're perfect words of humility. And John is not just saying this because it's the right thing to say. So if you ever find yourself being proud, just merely quoting this probably, probably will not help you. John wasn't just saying this, he meant this. And we have so much to learn from what he has said here. He is a model of humility. What is the first thing John says? Master, everybody's leaving you and going over to him. This is not turning out right. Verse 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Now we need to lean in here and listen because this is how he begins. This is the foundation of humility right here. If we don't understand this principle, we're not going to be people of humility. He turns their focus to the givenness of everything. How many things can a man receive apart from God? 
Does he narrow it? Does he limit it to a certain sphere? He says here, a man can receive nothing unless it is given him. He says, everything is given. That's, what his, that's his point. Friends, why are you bickering here? Everything is given. And brothers and sisters, humility is always wedded to a true apprehension of the givenness of all things. Everything that you have, everything that you enjoy, whatever it may be, is given to you from God to the proportion that you understand the givenness of all things is to the proportion that you'll have humility. Because if you think that you have taken or you have achieved or you have grasped and it hasn't been given, it's an accomplishment on your part, that's to the proportion that you'll be proud about it. This statement is not directly tied to either Jesus or himself. It's a general principle applied to the situation. So he he gives us a general principle. You know, you don't have anything but from God. And now when I apply it to this situation, we see that what's happening to me is because God hasn't given me that glory. God hasn't given me these people. He's given them to Christ. Christ is the center, and he has the supremacy from God. Now, do do we not often think and live as if it were the opposite? Is it not true that we often think a man can receive nothing unless he works for it, right? Unless he rises up and gets it himself, you won't get anything. And and there's a there is a superficial truth to that, right? But underneath that is, yes, but even your endeavor, even your ability, even your desire, even your um, opportunity is actually from God. Everything really does just come from him. But we often live not recognizing this principle. But what a difference it would make if you and I saw the givenness of everything. What do you think it would do for you if you saw the givenness of all the things that you enjoy in life? Do you think you'd be more thankful and less proud for, the thing, for your accomplishments, for your, for your wealth, for your friends that you enjoy? You realize they're all a gift from God. What would that do for your hardships in life? Everything is given. That would even transform the way we think about our difficulties, right? This is given from God, and therefore I can take encouragement that he has given this to me because he's wise, he's good, he loves me, he's in control. It's when we forget that everything comes from God's hand that we run into these problems. John knew this lesson. In verse 28 He recognizes that it's been given to him to be a witness, but he is not the Christ. We all need to learn that lesson. In verse 29, we see that John is not sad about this, but he's glad about this. It's not like, I'm not the Christ, boo-hoo, you know? In verse 29, he, he shows his joy. John is like a friend at a wedding. Have you ever been a friend at a wedding? Now, have you ever been a friend at a wedding... And you, you said, boo-hoo, it's not me getting married, right? I hope not. <laughs> I hope you've never been at a wedding and you've been sulking because you're not the center of attention. But what happens at weddings, typically, is that we're glad for the fact that two people are getting married and they're the center of the attention in this situation. Right? And we're just happy for them. That's what you should be at a wedding. Just happy for your friend who's getting married. I'm so glad for you. This is your day. This is your ceremony. This is your day. Your wife, your husband, praise the Lord for this gift. That is what a beautiful wedding is all about. It's not about me, it's about this person. I'm, this is a good thing for them, and I love that person, and I'm happy for them, therefore. Now, what a difference it would make if we saw all of life that way, right? All of life that way. That this whole thing isn't about me. This whole created world is not about me. I'm not the center here. Jesus Christ is the center here. This is good for the world. This is because I love Jesus. I'm happy for him. 
He gets to be the center. He's the one who's beautiful. He's the one who's worthy. He's the one who deserves it. And I'm the friend of the bridegroom just rejoicing in the fact that he is receiving his bride. All of life is supposed to be seen this way. But do we not often see it the other way? In our lives and in the situations we find ourselves in, unless I'm the center, I can't have joy. Right? You know that people who are like that, unless I'm the center of attention, unless I'm the one who's getting the glory, unless I'm the one who's got the attention, I can't have joy. Those are miserable people, aren't they? Because the reality is they're not the center. Verse 29 must be our attitude, not only for the sake of piety, brothers and sisters, and by piety I mean God alone is the center and he's worthy of that, but also for the sake of our joy. Verse 29 needs to become a reality in our lives. For piety's sake and for our joy's sake. Augustine commented, He that will have joy of himself shall be sad, but he that will have his joy of God will ever rejoice. And we come in verse 30 to the noble summary, and these are truly exceptional words. He must increase but I must decrease. The meaning of these words is, he must become greater, and I must become lesser. Now, most people in this world are not famous, and so seeing another person become famous is not a loss for us. Here we are down here, and somebody rises up from down here and becomes famous. It's not a loss for us. We're just, we may be sad that we didn't rise up, but we're still right here. We haven't moved. Somebody else has become famous. But if you are famous and you lose your fame because another person becomes famous, that's a little bit more difficult, isn't it? So we might, we might say, oh, I wish I was the one to rise up. But if you're already up here and then somebody else rises and you go down, that's a little bit more difficult. I think we all can struggle with that in miniature, but that's kind of what's happening with God and us. He must increase and I must decrease. I'm way up here and I shouldn't be in my own mind. I got to go down and he needs to go up and that's going to be a little difficult. But here's John the Baptist. And remember, John the Baptist was a famous guy. He had crowds. He had all of Israel going out to him. So this makes this statement all the more remarkable. This man had the crowds hanging on his words. And as Jesus now has come, the one to whom he was testifying, and Jesus now is the center, of God is bringing people to Jesus. God is bringing, the Bible says, heaven and earth is to be summed up in him. It's all going to him. And John the Baptist here makes this amazing statement, therefore, he must increase, I must decrease. I'm going down. You guys think I'm somebody? I'm not. He's somebody. He understood life is not a competition. Life is not a competition between ourselves and others or between ourselves and God. There are two different ways we can understand the word must here. And both are important. When John says he must increase, but I must decrease, we can think of this first of all, In this sense, he must increase if the moral order of things is not to be perverted. So in order for things to be right, he must increase and I must decrease. If things are to be what they should be, if the moral order of things is not to be all topsy-turvy and perverted, he must go up, I must go down, he must become greater, I must become lesser. So if this is to happen, if this is to happen, he must increase. But the other way we can think of this must is he must increase because God has determined it to be so. It's not only right that he increases and I decrease, it's inevitable. It's not only right, it's inevitable. Because we might think it's right that he increases and I decrease, but it doesn't happen, right? 
But I want you to take from this verse, not only that it's right, but that it is inevitable. In John's mind, he, he recognizes it's inevitable as well. He must increase. That is going to happen because God's will will be done, and his will is to glorify Christ and to take away glory from man. And I must decrease. It's inevitable. That is happening, and it's going to continue to happen. And I'm either going to accept the inevitability or fight against it. And what is inevitable is right. It's good. It's beautiful. It's how it should be. In what way does he increase? Not in his inherent quality. So the point is not that he, in in his inherent quality, is becoming greater. Jesus is as great as he could be. So the point is not he must become greater and I must become lesser in our inherent quality He's already up here. I'm already down here. It is in the eyes and estimation of the world, of all things, of ourselves, in our eyes and in our estimation, and in the eyes and the estimation of others, he must become greater and I must become lesser. It's kind of like if you're driving down a road towards a mountain the mountain becomes greater and greater and greater in your eyes. It's not inherently becoming greater. It's not actually growing as you get closer, right? The mountain is there and it doesn't move. And likewise, if you drive away from the mountain, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. The mountain hasn't changed one bit, but it has become lesser and lesser and lesser in your eyes. And I think that in each of our lives, in everyone's life, but even in our lives as Christians, Christ is either increasing or decreasing in our estimation and in our eyes. I truly believe that. That we all can, in our eyes and estimation, see Christ greater and greater and greater than we do right now. Would you agree? Would you say you've reached the top? I see Christ in the best that he could possibly be, and I see myself as low as I could possibly be. No. We're all either driving toward the mountain of Christ or away from the mountain of Christ. And I think that it's a slow and awkward drive too, as if we were on, this is the image that I had, but I think we're all kind of on tricycles. (laughs) It's not like we're zipping along in a car. And because it's slow and awkward, we don't often notice it changing until some time has elapsed, right? So depending on the direction of your mind and your heart and your life, it'll take some time, but over time you're going to notice Jesus has become greater in my eyes or Jesus has become less in my eyes. I have become greater in my eyes or I have become less in my, in my eyes. The question is, what is your trajectory? Which direction are you tricycling? Toward Christ or away from him? Because we can only go toward him or away from him. So he's either increasing or he's decreasing. But it's inevitable that he will increase and we will decrease. We can fight it, but it's going to happen, even in non-believers. Non-believers have gone so far away from Christ, you know, those who are anti-Christ. To Christ, the mountain doesn't even exist. But when they die, boom, there's the mountain and they were wrong, right? It's inevitable he'll increase. But where are we heading now with our lives? So here John the Baptist gives us a splendid model. He is the quintessence of humble service to God. His own disciples complain to him about his lack of popularity and his decreasing. And he says, hey, this is the inevitable plan of God. I came to testify of Jesus. I am not the center. I am the friend of the bridegroom and I'm rejoicing in his joy. This is about him and not about me. That's the way it should be, and that's the way it's going to be. He gives us an example. We can follow this. And interestingly, even though John is the quintessence of humble service, no man was ever so praised by Jesus than John the Baptist. Isn't that interesting? J.C. Ryle comments, The way to true honor is humility. No man was ever so praised by Christ as John. So even though he just said, I got a decrease and I'm nobody, it's all about him, Jesus commends him for that. It's really amazing. And lastly this morning, we, the, the passage moves on to a declaration of the incomparable glory of Jesus Christ. And I'd just like to reflect on Jesus with you this morning based upon the text. 
Just think about him with me, how wonderful he is. We've seen petty rivalry, base competition, people arguing about mud pies in the face of this feast. We've seen the splendid model of John the Baptist who points to Jesus and away from himself. And at last here we have this beautiful treatment on the glory of Jesus. What we see here is a series of brief statements concerning him. Kind of rapid fire, just one thing after another concerning him. And I'd like to just highlight six of them. Backtracking to verse 30, or sorry, to verse 29, the first thing I'd like to point out is that Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, is the incomparable bridegroom of God's people. Jesus Christ is the incomparable bridegroom of God's people. Now, I already talked about how the friend of the bridegroom rejoices at the bridegroom, that it's all about the bridegroom. But I'd just like to point out this, that when John the Baptist brings up this picture of the wedding and the bridegroom, this is an allusion to the Old Testament in which Israel, the people of God, are depicted as the bride of God. And what that means is they belong to him and to no other. If they go after anything else, that's adultery. If he goes after anything else, that's adultery. They are wedded to one another and he is their husband. Now that's an awesome picture and an amazing thing that, that the God of the universe would come to human beings and bring them to himself as a bride to care for them and to own them and to love them like that. And what John is saying here is that, you know that illusion in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, the people of God belong to God? Well, Jesus is the husband. Jesus is God who is the husband to his people. We do not belong to any man, no matter how spiritual they may be, no matter if they're John the Baptist or Paul the Apostle, it is the Lord to whom we belong. It is to him alone that we are wedded. Jesus is the greatest husband, head, friend, lover, leader you will ever and could ever have. And so just reflect upon him. He has unique glory here. He is the center. You don't belong to me, but you belong to him. He is the husband. Secondly, Jesus Christ is the incomparable messenger from heaven. Verse 31 and 32. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. When I read that this morning, I felt, yep, that's me. My words are just earthy. I'm trying here to communicate his words, right? He is from the earth, he is from heaven, and he who comes from heaven is above all, and what he has seen and heard of that, he testifies. And we talked about this two weeks ago, but Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified to be the one who teaches us the things of God, because he comes from above, not just as one of many up there, but as the center, the th- he comes from the throne. He's the creator of heaven. He's the Lord of heaven. He's the center of heaven. And he is above all things. He is above all in authority, ability. He's above all in awareness. He's above all in God's approbation. He is above all. And he has come, this is the grand message of Christianity, but the one who is above all has come down to the earth in flesh and blood to teach us the things of heaven. Incomparable glory. You can't point to another like him. And there's no other way to explain Jesus, is there? How do you explain him but that he is the man, the Lord from heaven? You can't point to any other religious leader and say that. He is from above, and so is above all. Therefore, in verse 32, when John says, no one receives his testimony, it's a shock. In the light of who he is, it is a shock that no one would receive the testimony of the one who comes from heaven and who is heavenly. In the light of who he he is, it is a shock 
But when you consider it in the light of what humanity is, I suppose it's not a shock that no one receives this testimony. Thirdly, Jesus Christ is the incomparable apostle of God. Verse 33. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, not that he is true merely, but that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. So here what John is saying is Jesus and the Father are so united that when you hear Jesus, you are literally hearing God. When you believe in Jesus, you are literally certifying that God is true. And when you disbelieve in Jesus, you are actually rejecting God. No one can reject Jesus and not also reject God at the same time. And this world is so is full of people, isn't it, who reject Jesus and yet still think they have not rejected God. But Jesus here, we are told, is the incomparable apostle. That is, he's the ambassador of God. He speaks the words of God. He does the works of God. And of no other can it be said, no one else can say what Jesus said. I never say and I never do anything but what the Father says and does. He alone is the express image of the Father. When you look at him, you see the Father perfectly. Fourthly, Jesus is incomparably endued with the Spirit. In verse 34, we're told this. For he gives the Spirit without measure. Now, there's some who thinks that this is referring to Jesus himself. Jesus himself gives the Spirit to us without measure. But most commentators believe this statement means that God the Father gives the Spirit to Jesus without measure. And I think this latter interpretation is correct. The prophets received a measure of the Spirit suited to their task, but the task of the Son, brothers and sisters, was so immeasurable that the Spirit was given without measure to him. And you might think it's strange that the Son of God would need the Spirit, but remember, we're talking about the incarnate Son of God. We're talking about the Jesus who is fully man. He is God, but he came to earth and he was a man, and as a man, he was given the Spirit. When he was baptized, the Spirit came upon him without measure to complete a task incomparable to any task that humans have ever been given the Spirit to do. We read in Ephesians chapter 4 that God has given some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers by His Spirit. It says that. He ascended on high and He gave gifts to men. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, that there is one Spirit, but there's different operations of the Spirit. To some is given the gift of wisdom, to some, the gift of knowledge, the gift of healings, the gift of administration, all these things. Many different gifts according to his allotment, but one spirit. And therefore, we need one another because the spirit hasn't been given without measure to you and to me, I don't think, right? He's given according to measure to me and to you. He's given us different gifts, and so we need one another. But is it not true that Jesus Christ has all of the things of the Spirit? Jesus has all wisdom. Jesus has all knowledge. Jesus had healing. Jesus had power. Jesus had mercy. Jesus was an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, and a teacher because he was given the Spirit without measure. And a million other things came with that as well. We receive from the fullness of Jesus because his fullness is the fullness of God. All the, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ bodily. That's incomparable. Should he not rightly then be the center and the one who has our adoration? Because as God, he came to earth, emptied himself, and was filled immeasurably with the Spirit for our sakes. Fifthly, Jesus Christ is the incomparable possessor of all things, Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. D.A. Carson comments here that the unfolding of redemptive history finds its ultimate source in the loving relationships in the Godhead. That is, if Jesus was not loved by the Father, 
There would be no salvation for you and for me. And because Jesus was loved by the Father, because the Son was loved by the Father, he gave, it says in verse 35, all things into his hands. This is a comprehensive statement. What does it mean? If we read on in the Gospel of John, there's a few different things that Jesus said has been given into his hand. He talks about how judgment has been given into his hand by the Father. He talks about how life has been given to him, to have life in himself by the Father. He talks about the people of God being given to him by the Father. He mentions a few of these things, but there are many more that he doesn't mention. All things have been given into his hand, and this is what I believe this means, that it has been given to Jesus to be Savior, to be King, to be the Bridegroom, to be the Head, to be the Judge, namely to be God. This man is, it is given to him to rule. It is given to him to save. As Augustine says, that the Son should be as should be such as the Father is. This glory is uniquely reserved for the man, Jesus Christ. I'm not sure if that makes sense to you, but all things have been given into his hand. All authority, all power, all dominion, all majesty. These are things that the angels worship God for. But then of course, Jesus, this man, this one who is born of the Virgin, is God. And yet God is allowing this man, Jesus, to have all majesty and all dominion and all power. And we'll worship him forever and ever. And he is our savior. If all things had not been given to Jesus, would you and I have any hope of salvation? No. Because verse, the last thing, verse 36, Jesus Christ is the incomparable savior of the world, verse 36. It is to him that we look for our salvation. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's to Jesus Christ that we look for salvation, not arbitrarily. God has not given all things to Christ for no reason. It doesn't make any sense. He's given all things to Christ because as the incarnate God, he was the one who suffered and who died for our sins and who saves us from the wrath of God through his death. And he rose and he has life now to give to you and I. There is no one else, brothers and sisters, who can save. There is no one else, friend, who can save because no one has done for you what Jesus Christ has done. You can believe in Buddha. It will not do you any good. You can believe in Muhammad as the prophet. It will not do you any good because Jesus is the only one, it says here, who has the power to give you eternal life and to save you from the wrath of God because all things have been given to him. Whoever does not believe, the scripture here does not say the wrath of God comes to that person, but it remains upon that person. Jesus came into the world because we all were under the wrath of God. And it is this wrath that is removed by faith in Jesus Christ. And this shows us the love of God that Christ came into the world to save those who are under God's wrath. It's a good thing that if you're under the wrath of God, that's not all there is to be said. Amen? It's a good thing that we can tell people, you know, you're under the wrath of God, but there's a way out of this. Yes, he has wrath for you, but that's not all he has for you, because if that's all he had for you, you'd not be here. So we see God's love in that he loves those whom who are under his wrath. There's no contradiction here between God having wrath for a person and love for them. There's no contradiction. And we declare that as Christians. Yes, God is angry with the wicked every day and he died for them. And we see his love in that 
He gave his son to redeem us from this wrath, and this is his beloved son. This is God himself. This is the incomparable Christ who came into the world and redeemed us through his death. So in light of all this, brothers and sisters, I'm, I conclude that we can live in unreality and we can quarrel and we can bicker and we can have our petty competitions and vying for glory or we can follow the example of John the Baptist who walked in reality and who followed that which was right and inevitable. He must increase. He must be seen as beautiful. He must be seen as the one who is worthy. He deserves our attention and our affection and our trust and our confidence. And he, in our eyes and estimations, must become greater and we must become lesser. Because he is the center. Can we rejoice in that? May the mountain of Jesus Christ grow larger and larger throughout our feeble days. May we see the givenness of all things, that we may live in humility before God and others, and may we see that in Jesus Christ, in him being the center, is our good, is beautiful, and that in him we have all that we desire. Please stand with me. Father, thank you for this word. He must increase, but I must decrease. Thank you that this is beautiful and good. And Father, I pray that you would help us all to see with eyes every day the truth of this. And thank you that in the centrality and supremacy of Jesus is our peace, is our hope, is our life, and our joy. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.